If you will, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews. Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, and if you've been with us for a little while, we've been in Hebrews for a few weeks. I think this is week 9, and uh, started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're here today. If I had to think of an analogy to sort of picture what it's like to preach through Hebrews, and I think to be a listener even through Hebrews, it's like um, you and I are walking on a sidewalk, and on both sides of the sidewalk, it's just lined with $5 bills, $10 bills, and $20 bills. And we only have a limited amount of time, but I'm pointing out where the 50s and 100s are, and you have to ignore the 5s, 10s, and 20s. That's how it feels to, to go through this book together, because there's so much more than what we're picking up. Uh, and so there's a, a weekly challenge for me, and that is to keep moving forward, because there are greater treasures perhaps to see than the ones that can kind of distract from the main point. So we, uh, we begin that endeavor again this morning. Hebrews 4 is where we're going to be, and I'll read that in just a moment. One of the shows that uh, Brooke and I, my wife and I, like to watch is The Office, and I won't go by show of hands, but I believe that a few of you guys probably watch that show as well. Uh, if you don't know what The Office is, The Office is about a dysfunctional office. It's uh, a dysfunctional office with a dysfunctional boss. His name is Michael Scott. One of the episodes is called Conflict Resolution which is an ironic name because it can't resolve any conflict. It's called conflict resolution, and Michael, the boss, becomes obsessed with mediating all the conflicts between individuals in the office. He desires to perfectly mediate and bring everyone together in love and harmony, and it's a disaster because he's terrible at doing those things because he can't really represent anybody because he's so wacky and different than everybody. And yet he reads a book on conflict resolution, and so he says, we're going to pursue not a lose-win situation, not a lose-lose situation, not a win-lose, not even a win-win. He says, we're going to go for the win-win-win, which is that you win, he wins, we, we all win, is what he says. And I win, he says, because I've successfully mediated a conflict. But he's an idiot. That's the theme of the, of the whole show, is that he's not too bright. One of the, the conflicts is between two of the characters named Angela and Oscar. They both work in accounting, they both sit right next to each other, and they have a conflict over a poster that Angela really likes and Oscar really hates. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. This is the poster. And Angela really likes her poster. She says it's art. And Oscar says that he's offended by that, by a fan of art, and says it's the opposite of art. It's, it's horrific to look at. And this is the piece of art that, you know, supposed art that Angela wants to put up. Oscar wants it taken down. And so Michael steps in and says, I'm going to perfectly mediate this conflict. His decision is, well, we, we're not going to leave it up because Oscar doesn't want that. We can't take it down because Angela wants that. I got it, he says. We'll print the poster onto a T-shirt that Oscar has to wear. That way Angela can see it and Oscar never has to. You can take that down. Obviously, that is not a good compromise. It's a terrible compromise, and the whole theme of that is that he poorly, very poorly, represents both parties because he doesn't understand really either parties, and the whole episode is about how terrible he is at mediating conflicts because he really doesn't get anybody, and nobody really gets him. You see, conflict resolution was the role of biblical priests, and that's what we're going to talk about today in Hebrews 4. The role of biblical priests, and you may hear that word and think of a modern priest being maybe in the Catholic Church, there's, there's some, by definition, similarities there, but doctrinally, that role has expired, and that's what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews today, is that conflict resolution was the role of biblical priests. Hear this, not between people, but between people and a holy God. That was the conflict. 
is that a holy God is holy. He is sinless. And yet people are not that. They are sinful. And so here you have the conflict. And the whole role of the priest is to come between the two as a representative of people and as a voice of God and say, I'm going to bring these two parties that are at conflict, naturally speaking, together. And that's why, by the way, God gave them the sacrificial system. You know that part of your Bible that bogs you down, that you don't like to frequent very much? It was really, really important for many, many years it was everything to them because it was the only way that they could have temporary appeasement and fellowship with God. You see, then Jesus comes on the scene and he's not just any other priest. In fact, he's given a new name. It is the great high priest, the great mediator, the one that has come. And Jesus represents two parties perfectly, people and God, because he's both, right? He desires to perfectly mediate the world's eternal conflict and bring the two parties together. And here's the thing. He represents humanity perfectly, but he does so in a way that no other high priest could, and it's this, that he would redeem all people for mankind. Restored fellowship to God. So when we're in Hebrews 4 and really beyond, because we're entering into a new section today, I want you to remember the role of the priest. Don't think of like the religious figure with the black get up and the white little spot there. I want you to think, don't even think of the Catholic confessional, but when you hear the word priest, I want you to think of the mediator that comes between a cosmic conflict and reconciles people to God. Good? Let's see it in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. <clears throat> Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author of Hebrews, and I don't want, this may sound redundant, but I don't mean for it to be. The author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians, and that's really important because everything that we read, we have to understand that first, it was to be understood with Jewish eyes and Jewish ears and Jewish minds and hearts. As this author is writing to Jewish Christians, they were having a hard time looking to Christ and looking away from Judaism. That's why we kind of titled the whole series of sermons in our walk through this book the word greater, because the emphasis of the author of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater, he's more, he's better than all the things that the Jewish Christians were looking back at in their Jewish tradition. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look forward. We have a, a new, a greater that we should be putting our eyes on. I said that we're beginning a new section today. The section three, really. The first section of this book was that Jesus is greater than the angels, right? That the, the author was trying to say that don't worship angels. Angels themselves are worshipers. And so don't put them on a pedestal. Put Jesus on a pedestal because angels themselves are worshiping Jesus. The second section that we kind of concluded last week was that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. In other words, he's a greater messenger. He brings a greater message and he brings a greater eternal rest. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 14, which begins the third major section of the book, and it's going to last for several chapters. And that's that Jesus' priesthood, again, read mediator, Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Jewish traditional priesthood. And the setup for this has already been beyond us. It's in chapter 2, verse 17, which said, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become, hear this, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation just means that Jesus' task as high priest was the same task of any high priest except 
His was eternal, and that propitiation just means turning the wrath of God into the eternal favor of God. It's gospel, right? And he's already introduced this in chapter 2, verse 17, saying this is his role. He then kind of reiterated it in chapter 3, verse 1, when he said that Jesus is the high priest of our confession, which we'll look at in a second. And then chapter 4, verse 14, picks up where those verses left off, and it says even since then. The very first words of this first verse that we're going to look at in verse 14, since then, meaning because of the things already stated, here's the conclusion that we can draw from that. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at two primary conclusions that the author of Hebrews introduces to us as readers. The first one is this. Since Jesus is high priest, we can cling tightly to our confession. We can cling tightly to our confession. <clears throat> now, when I use the word confession, you may immediately go to like confessing of sin, giving, putting something out there that is wrong, and so I confess my sin. But when we think of the word confession in this sense, in the sense that's already been mentioned in Hebrews and is mentioned here in verse 14, that's really not the right term to think of. It's not confession as in confessing of sin. That's a different Greek word. When it's using the word confession here, what that means is it's a statement of beliefs. In fact, the Greek word means together speak. It's something that is spoken together, that we all say together. It's our confession of faith, right? We use that term, a confession of faith. It means it's together speak. It's the words that we all say together that define our collective hope. And so the author bases our confession on the fact that we have a great high priest. So he says, since then, here's the confession. He says, let's hold fast to it. Look at verse 14. So since then, we have a great high priest. Here's the modifier. Who has passed through the heavens? Now listen, he's going to contrast the role, the typical traditional role of high priest in saying, in Jesus we have a different sort of that, okay? He says, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, son of God. There's one way it's, he's greater than others, right? Let us, he says, hold fast our confession. Now here's the formula that he says. Because we have A, we should do this. We should do B, okay? Because we have A, let us then do B, See, high priests are found throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, but as we will see at length even in this book, the tradition had wrongfully been continuing in the New Testament. I say wrongfully because when Jesus came, he redefined the office. He caused it to be extinct. There were many high priests throughout the centuries, but there was only one great high priest, the greater, right? There are many high priests, but Jesus redefined the role. As he came, he caused it to be extinct, this role, because he fulfilled it perfectly and permanently. One of the modifiers it mentions here in verse 14 is that our great high priest, it says, who has passed through the heavens. Well, he literally did that as he ascended, right? He passed through to the skies. But really what's happening here is that the author is using this little phrase, passed through the heavens, to say that he has entered the presence of God. That's a heck of a modifier. He's entered the presence of God. You see, the high priest, again, historically, the high priest would enter into a figurative throne room. That room was called the Holy of Holies. Go ahead and put that diagram up there. I realize that we've never seen a, the temple of, of the Old Testament, but this is just a, a kind of a bird's eye diagram of what that would have looked like. On the right side over there, you see where it says outer courtyard, and then the middle would be the holy place, and the far left would be the Holy of Holies. You get more and more specific and um, excluded the further left that you go on that diagram okay the holy of holies was a place that was only entered into annually one time a year and only by one man from all the people of israel these tens of thousands perhaps millions of people only one guy could go into this place one time a year can you imagine the dust build up right 
Only one time he could go in there. And the reason he went in there was to use, actually, to use the word we mentioned a minute ago, to make propitiation for sin. He would enter into the Holy of Holies. That place was a figurative throne room. It was the place that represented the, the concentrated dwelling place of God. And so this man would clean himself up. He put on his fancy garments and he would shakingly, tremblingly go into the figurative presence of God and offer a special satisfying sacrifice on behalf of all the people that sent him in there. Look at the other image. This may be do a little bit better justice. Now this is sort of like if you were to pull the, a layer off of this space. This would be the tabernacle and temple that would be a, a similar diagram. But on that one that you're looking at with the candles and the altar there, that's, that would be the, the holy places. But the holy of holies would be behind that kind of purple veil. This is a 30 foot high veil, okay? This is a big, big curtain. This ain't your shower curtain. This is a bigger curtain, right? It's very thick. And so this guy would pull back that veil and go in there and that's where he would make this atoning sacrifice annually. It was a place that was, for all intents and purposes, appropriately named. It was the holy of holies. Of all the set apart places, it was the most set apart because it represented the figurative throne room of God. God. And again, he would pass through the veil annually, a figurative barrier between God and man, enter into the figurative throne room and mediate with a blood sacrifice, temporary though, as he did it every year. You can take that down. Jesus though, as it says in verse 14, he passed through the heavens, meaning that he, not annually, but once for all time, he broke through not a veil, not a figurative barrier. He broke through the heavens, the physical barrier between God and man, overcoming the physical barrier. He did not enter a figurative throne room, but the physical one. You see how he's greater, right? He entered not into a figurative room that represented the dwelling place of God. No, he went to the physical throne room of the Father, and he brought not a temporary blood sacrifice, but an eternal one by his own blood. Old Testament priests' sacrifices, I'm going to use words carefully here. It's kind of interesting. Old Testament priest sacrifices were ordained by God. But here's the thing. They only bought God's people time against sin. But Jesus' sacrifice bought God's people victory over sin. Romans 3 says that. That the Old Testament sacrifices, God was looking over sin for a time. A shadow of things to come. But one day Jesus would proclaim victory over the sin that they were just buying time from. It's amazing. The literal throne room, right? That's why Hebrews 1, 3 that we've already looked at, the second half of that says, after making purification for sins, that's the sacrifice, says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Which throne room is he in? Not the Holy of Holies. Not figurative, but literal, physical. And guys, that is the truth of the gospel. Our confession, here's our confession. The one that we're supposed to hold fast to as it says in verse 14, here's our confession. No more priests, no more sacrifices, no more barrier. Praise God. No more intercessors. You don't have to go to confessional and say, hey, can you take my prayers to God? I have a barrier between he and I. No, no, no. No more barrier. No more priests. Save one, the great high priest. No more sacrifices. And praise God that we don't have to bring animals in here and lay them up on these steps and do some ritual. The ritual was already performed 2,000 years ago. Praise God for that. It's the good news of the gospel, and that is our confession that we're to hold tightly to. Romans 10.9 says this well. In fact, it uses the verb confess, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, there's the confession, right, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will what? Be saved. That is the contents of our confession. That is our gospel confession. Now hear this. 
Now the author of Hebrews is saying in verse 14, since then, since we have that, okay, since that is what we hold on to, that, that, if that's the good news, that's the truth, he says, let us hold fast. Remember I told you last week when you're looking for application in the book of Hebrews, what are you supposed to do? Look for the lettuce. It's a, it's a dad joke. I'm a dad. I have four kids. That's what we do. Look for the lettuce. And that's what he says in verse 14. He says, let us then, let us then hold fast. Now we're going to see later that the audience of the letter was running to old ways and other priests. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, run to Jesus. He's greater than them. Why? Verse 15. Four, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why run to him? Because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet, it says, without sin. <laughs> you see, many high priests could be people that could identify with weaknesses. None of them can say that last part, yet without sin. In the Old Testament, high priests were selected from among the people they served. They were to represent them, the people, to God. They too personally knew the temptation of sin, the gift of mercy, but they themselves were sinners. How is Jesus greater? That last part did not apply to him. You see, he can represent people, represent man as man, and yet without sin. What I want you to see here is that Jesus knows the full range of the human experience. Jesus knows the full range of the human experience. A few verses down in chapter 5, verse 2, it says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. That doesn't mean that he's less than God. It means that he's fully human. Jesus laughed, wept, prayed, worked, bled, slept, he got sick, he loved, he suffered loss, he gained friends, he lost friends, he lost family, he was tempted to rage, to lust, to lie, he was tempted to be impatient, lazy, he was tempted to have hurtful speech, he was tempted to be prayerless, he knows the full range of the human experience, but he did it perfectly. The word in verse 15 says he can sympathize. But that word sympathize in the second half of verse 15, <clears throat> it's not limited to compassion or empathy. It also denotes Jesus' ability to help those who are afflicted. That's why it says in verse 16, he can help in time of need. We'll get there in verse 16 in a second. It says he can help in a time of need. Here's why that's, why that's important. When your need is the greatest, there you will find Jesus. Where your need is the greatest, there you will find a high priest who can connect with you, who can sympathize with your weakness. Paul knew this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. He said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul continues and says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, sufferings is what he's saying, right? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is he saying that he's strong? No. Your strength comes from within you, but it don't come from you. That's what Paul's saying. He understands that the only reason that he can bear weakness is because he can't, but Jesus can. 
in him. So what does it look like to cling to our confession? Let us hold fast to our confession. It means to cling to our Lord. There's a couple hundred people here maybe and represented in this room are real sorrows. I've spoken to many of you about them. There's real sorrow in this room. Real weakness in this room. And I want to tell you something. No one understands your sorrow like God does. No one. No one has been through it like God has. Yet without sin. You know, we, I pray that you have friends, family, church, that you can bear with one another. The Bible says that, right? To bear with one another. And I, I pray that you have that. But there is someone greater that we should take our sorrow to. Take your sorrow to your friends, your family, to your church family. Please do. That's why God's given us to each other, right? But there is someone greater that can bear your sorrows, bear your weaknesses with you. Run to God first for counsel, for embrace, for compassion. There's not just real sorrow and weakness in this room. There's real despair, brokenness in this room. And it's good to have family, friends, church, like I said, they're all gifts to us, but no one can restore your despair like God can. Go to him first, not last, not with scraps. Go to him first for comfort, for recovery, for joy. And here's the good news, which we're about to get to, is that when you go to him, you can go to him with, amazing word here, confidence. And that's the second thing that we're gonna see in this passage. Blows my mind is that we can go to God and draw near with confidence. We can draw near with confidence. The final conclusion that the author makes is in verse 16. He's then gonna move on from that, but look at verse 16. By the way, notice, let us, let us, let us then with confidence. So as a result of those things, he can identify with us, he can sympathize with us, he's a great high priest. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What, what a statement. That we, so here's the result, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, let us then. So as a result of those things we just talked about, the instruction is to draw near to God with confidence. Now, I said this at the beginning, I'm gonna reiterate it now, because I think it's easy that we forget this. When we read the word confidence, we have to read that word with Jewish eyes, which is hard. It's hard to do that. But we got to read that word out of our context and into their context. That word confidence is a Greek word that means courage. It's specifically courage when approaching someone, right? And specifically, most often used in their context, this would be courage when approaching someone, oftentimes specifically a person of rank and power, and you are small, but you're approaching someone that is great, and you can have confidence to do so, courage to do so. There's a movie that you may have heard of called Star Wars. Maybe you've heard of that, I don't know kind of sweeping and taking over the world, which is kind of ironic because that's what the empire did in Star Wars. <laughs> Disney is the empire. All right, anyway. In Star Wars, again, the first, move, the first Star Wars movie, which is actually the fourth Star Wars movie, that's confusing, but oh well. There's a character named Darth Vader. Maybe you've heard of him too. 
And towards the beginning of the movie, he's sitting in sort of a, a, a boardroom of decision makers, and he has one of his inferiors that comes up to him and sort of gives him some lip. And he says, Lord Vader, you are tied up with these ancient ways of the force and these mystic, ridiculous things. And what happens after that? Some of you guys know what happens after that. Go ahead and put that image up there. You're making the sound even. He, he force chokes, which is like an invisible power. He, um, he force chokes him because he's, in, he's inferior and he's giving him some lip. He says, Lord Vader, you're the fool because you're whatever. And he just like that. And you can see him, you know. This guy didn't have confidence to approach the superior. Okay, what we have is the opposite of this, and, and please, for the love, take that down. <laughs> what, what Darth Vader says in that scene is, is interesting, too. He says, I find your lack of faith disturbing, which is really the ironic part that I wasn't even going to talk about. But the irony of that is that while God is disturbed by our lack of faith, we aren't dismissed from him because of it. We have no business being confident before holy God. We have no business being confident. Left to ourselves, there's no reason for you to have confidence, courage to approach a supreme ranking individual. He truly is supreme. We should have no confidence. Confidence before a holy God as a sinful man or woman is a breathtaking reality, no pun intended. I did not mean to say that. It's a breathtaking reality, though. Even if you don't realize how amazing that is, I suggest to you it is amazing. This week, I had a 47-minute FaceTime conversation, face-to-face, you know, phone face-to-face, uh, with my sister who lives in the Middle East. A 47-minute FaceTime call. If I'd have told you that 20 years ago, you'd blow your lid, right? If I'd have told Albert Einstein that in the 50s, I probably would have caused his death, right? Because there was a time when that was amazing. But since then, we've become desensitized to just how amazing that is. The iPhone in your pocket has more than 100,000 times the processing power of the computer that landed a man on the moon 50 years ago. Is that amazing? Do you think about that a lot? When you, when you text or browse or swipe, you don't sit there and think, wow, wow, the power don't think about that, right? You don't think about that because you become desensitized to really just how amazing that is. But just because your amazement, listen, just because your amazement towards something has dulled does not mean that something has ceased to be amazing. You may have been raised in the church and always been told that you can go to God, that you know no different, but a Jewish believer would be absolutely stunned by this. Stunned that not the high priest, but the commoner, can go into the holy places, to the holy of holies. Anybody? They would be stunned by that reality. And they're right. It is stunning. I think this is one reason that we should spend a lot of time in the Psalms because the Psalms shout amazement that we can call God our God, that we can call the Father our Father. Just because your amazement may have dulled, it does not mean something has ceased to be amazing. Perhaps it just means that you take grace for granted. Praise God for grace. But let us not become desensitized to the stunning, breathtaking reality that we can go to a holy God. 
the way that we go to him is the last part that I want you to see. With confidence, it says, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive, verse 16, mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That we may receive mercy and find grace. Christian, you can speak plainly, boldly, confidently, albeit reverently, to a holy God. Listen, it is only a throne of grace because Jesus, the great mediator, is at the right hand of that throne of justice. You realize that? It is only a throne of grace because Jesus, the great mediator and peacemaker, is at its right hand. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tells us that Jesus stands there advocating You know what advocating means? It means that we can't stand on our own two legs, and we need somebody to stand with us and say, look to me, I I can speak for him. Imagine going into the throne room. You have a death sentence on your head, and Jesus goes to the judge and says, judge, I know the sentence. I know the wages that it requires, but I've paid it for them. That's an advocate. Somebody that can't stand, and an advocate comes up beside them and says, I'll hold him up. That is the good news of the gospel, church. We need an advocate. We can't stand before a holy God. Jesus has not only stood, he's proclaimed victory over the sin that once ensnared us. The truth of the gospel is that we can run to our God. Please hear this. Here's what we do with our confession, okay? What we do, this confidence, run to God with your sorrow. Don't be ashamed of it. Run to him with it. Run to God with your anger even. Give it to him. He can handle it reverently, but give it to him. God, I'm angry. I need you to know this. I'm in sorrow. I'm running to you because you say that you will help in time of need. Do it. Run to him with your frustration. Run to him with your joy, certainly. But run to him with your emptiness, with your depression, with your conflict, with your desperation, with your needs. It says that he will help. Don't go to Google before you go to God. By his mercy, you are not met by an unapproachably angry God with a sword but by an approachable, loving father with an embrace. He dispenses not harm, but help to those who have failed. He dispenses strength to those in the gauntlet of temptation. Church, we have a great high priest, one who can sympathize with our weaknesses as he himself was weak, albeit without sin. We have one that we can draw near to with confidence, because we will find mercy and grace. And you may need to be reminded of that today. That you don't have to be ashamed to talk to God. Under the burden of guilt, God doesn't want to talk to me. I've done too much. Sam said it earlier, that is the tempter talking you out of the confession. You hear that, right? That is the tempter stripping you of your confidence and he can't he has no jurisdiction because Jesus has sealed you but I venture to say that that's not the truth for all of you that's not true for all of you some people in this room today have have never really nailed down confessed their sin 
before a holy God and said, I need an advocate. I need one that will save me because I can't save myself. The Bible says that that throne of mercy and grace, for those that are not in Christ, it is not a throne of mercy and grace, but of wrath and judgment because they bear the full penalty of their sins. But there is one ready to be your mediator today. One that's ready to be your advocate. And his invitation is that you would say, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Lord, nail it to the cross. I don't want to bear it anymore. And today, you can give your life to him and be able to join the rest of us that are under the thumb of the world so often that we can say, even, even so, it's well with my soul. In Christ, righteous judgment has been replaced by radical mercy. And it's for his good or for his glory. It's for our good. It's a win-win. It's a win-win-win. Because of the goodness of Jesus, we can all win.